0: The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association of Anatomists.
1: Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, will this topic inflame you?
0: I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Today we'll be discussing inflammation, acute and chronic, constructive and destructive. Inflammation is constantly talked about in the media. New diets that reduce inflammation, miracle supplements that will cure disease by lowering inflammation, the marketing of antioxidant life extenders. With all of this information in the media, it can be hard to decipher the facts from the fiction. So today, we will be discussing inflammation, and to help me do that, I have an excellent interdisciplinary team. Would everybody like to introduce themselves? Hi,
2: my name is Michelle Leach. I'm head of the medical course at Monash University, and I'm a rheumatologist, uh, immunologist. I've done some research on inflammation in my PhD.
1: Hello, my name's Georgie Stevens. I'm a medical practitioner who works primarily in education. Hi, my name is Tiffany, and I'm a curious medical student. The word inflammation is bandied around a lot in day-to-day life. We hear about antioxidant-rich and anti-inflammatory superfoods. But what is inflammation? An example of inflammation that we might all have experienced at some point is getting a splinter in your finger. If you think about what happens, the splinter goes in and you might experience some pain. Then after a time, the area might turn red and swell. After that, you might notice some pus coming out of the wound.
0: Right, so that's an example of illustrating how we have immune cells in the skin, and some argue that the skin itself is one of the largest immune organs that we have. From an anatomical perspective, the layers of the skin are the epidermis. Epi means sit upon, so it's sitting upon the next layer, which is the dermis. Deep to that or underneath that is the superficial fascia or subcutaneous. That's that fatty tissue that you can actually grab. Deep to that would be the deep fascia that surrounds the muscular layer. If you think of a piece of meat that's got that shiny
1: sinew-like coating over it, that's the deep fascia that surrounds muscles. We have that too.
0: In the example of the splinter, it likely went through the epidermis and the dermis. And within those layers, there's a lot of innate immune cells associated with that.
2: Those innate cells are like sentinel cells that are always prepared. So when you use the word innate, what you mean is that we all have them and they're all there all the time and they're always ready to fight anything. They don't need to have had exposure to that splinter before to know that that splinter is a threat.
0: I recently saw a meme that said, we're never really alone. And that's because we have microbes constantly with us on our skin layers. So within the dermis and the epidermis, these immune system cells are really critical for helping make sure that when we do cut open the skin and potentially get to those deeper layers, that we have protection. We have that army of the immune system ready to go and ready to fight anything that could gain access. You mentioned that
1: inflammation is a good thing and it's a good process which we need in our bodies. But so far, everything you've talked about in the example of a splinter with the pain, the redness, the swelling, the pus, that doesn't sound very good. So how do we go from that stage to being healed?
2: So you could say that in, I think, the public perception, inflammation is a dirty word and it's something you don't want to have. But I am always very grateful for the fact that my body knows how to trigger inflammation because that's the only way that I can recover from the various insults that are happening.
0: That pain is a helpful, normal event of the healing process. As Dr. Leach pointed out, inflammation is really critical to help heal any injuries to the body. To do this, blood vessels will dilate or expand And when this happens, this allows all the cells involved with healing to have access to the injury site. So that inflammation that you see, that swelling, that heat, a lot of that's due to that expansion of the blood vessels. And the pain is really helpful because that sensory information that's coming from that area is telling you don't touch it, leave it alone and it's working to heal it, it's also a signal that those vessels and the structures around that area are changing size, and that signal gets sent back to your brain. So that pain is actually a helpful, normal process.
2: Inflammation is actually going on in all of our bodies all the time. When people who are unwell think about inflammation, they think about the pain, swelling, suffering, heat that they're experiencing, which has come to their attention because the inflammation has reached a point that they're aware of it and they see it as something that is bad for them. In fact, the inflammation that happens in all of our bodies is a way of responding appropriately to the constant threats and injuries that are occurring. So to some extent, a degree of inflammation is actually the healing that is happening in our bodies all the time. So inflammation is something that you really want to happen in a normal person. It's only when that inflammation becomes protracted or extreme or perhaps is more amplified than usual, that people will start to experience symptoms that they don't like. So the process that's set up to, first of all, increase the blood flow will cause heat and it will cause the white blood cell soldiers to leave the blood vessel and go into the tissue, which will be uncomfortable and it will cause swelling. And in fact, the pus that you see is some dead white blood cell soldiers that we call neutrophils coming out. And all of that is uncomfortable and painful. But the fact of the matter is that those white blood cell soldiers are there to clear up the debris and the damage. And in fact, they're trying to eat that splinter and to make it smaller and easier to eliminate. And behind those white blood cell soldiers are coming other cells, which will actually help close over the hole that has been made by the splinter. And eventually, uh, once the hole is closed over, this process will essentially shut itself down and the swelling will go away, the redness will go away and the heat will go away. So the beginning of the pain, once you start to feel the pain of a splinter, that is the start of the healing, which will follow.
1: What are the different causes or triggers for inflammation?
2: Anything that can threaten the body in any way could trigger inflammation. So that could be something from the outside, like a virus or a bacteria or an infection that would trigger inflammation. It could be a trauma that is either external or internal to the body. And from time to time, our bodies get confused and our own white blood cell soldiers or our immune system will actually turn on us. So we can hurt ourselves and trigger inflammation that way. Just about anything that is a threat to the body, the organs, the tissues or the cells can trigger an inflammatory response because the inflammatory response is a protective response.
0: And that threat can also be anxiety and stress. When we hear a word that has itis at
1: the end. Itis means inflammation. Can we talk about maybe how different tissues or organs in the body respond in different ways to inflammation? Yeah, I
2: mean, I think the word itis, I usually say to the medical students, means white blood cell soldiers are in the tissue. Mm-hmm. That's tonsillitis. Yeah. White blood cell soldiers are in the tonsil. Cholecystitis. white blood cell soldiers are in the gallbladder. Nephritis, white blood cell soldiers are in the kidney. And it doesn't just mean any old inflammation. It usually means someone has looked down the microscope and seen inflammation in that tissue, which they've seen it by cells. You can't look down and see cytokines in there. Neutrophils are a type of white blood cell soldier, part of the innate immune system. They're sentinels everywhere and they're ready to go for anything. They don't need to be primed. And that's why they're often the first responder and that doesn't matter where it is. So they might be the first responder in the skin where there's a splinter but equally they could be the first responder in the joint. And as a rheumatologist, if I take some fluid out of someone's knee that is swollen, and I look at that under the microscope, the main cell type I see in there is the white blood cell soldier that we call the neutrophil because they're always first on the scene. What you really want when you've got part of your body, an organ, a joint, an area of skin that is under siege in some way, the first thing your body does is say, let's rest this place while we fight this thing. What you don't want to do is walk around on that knee that is inflamed. Your brain is saying to you, rest. Usually once a neutrophil tries to phagocytose or swallow something, it expends its cellular energy and it dies. So the pus, the green, is like a dead neutrophil. It's done its job. It's sacrificed its life for the battle.
0: And I think that's really important. So if there's uh, white blood cell soldiers in every single tissue, it doesn't tell you what's causing that inflammation. It's just telling you that it happened and that the cells were activated by something that the body perceived as a threat.
1: Can you possibly also clarify what a cytokine is? The word
2: cytokine means cell mover. Cyto meaning cell and kine or kinetics meaning move. In fact, a cytokine is a substance. It can be an inflammatory substance, or it can be a communicator between cells that isn't inflammatory, but it causes cells to do something. In most cases, a cytokine is a molecule that will attach itself to a receptor on the surface of another cell or cells. And it will send a message inside the cell to the nucleus, which is at the heart of the cell, where the DNA is. And it will cause the DNA inside the nucleus of the cell to switch on a whole lot of different genes, which will cause that cell to make proteins, which will change the way that cell behaves. There are many different kinds of cytokines, but the one we're kind of talking about today are perhaps the ones that are involved in driving inflammation.
1: And like neutrophils, are cytokines part of the innate immune system where we all have them?
2: They absolutely are part of the innate immune system because neutrophils, which are the absolute prototypic innate cell, they make cytokines. And the kinds of cytokines that neutrophils make are the ones that will cause other cells to move and do things and other neutrophils to move and do things. And those cytokines are very involved in the innate immune system.
1: We so far talked about acute inflammation, which is when inflammation happens in direct response to a sort of specific injury. But in the longer term, we can have what's called chronic inflammation, where that inflammatory process goes on for longer than perhaps it needs to go for, or perhaps is good for our bodies. Is this a process that you're talking about, which is not so good or could be harmful? Acute inflammation is just as dangerous
2: as chronic. Acute just refers to the time frame. So you can have acute inflammation, which is wrong, 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 and will kill you. So you can have chronic inflammation that's actually adaptive and good for you, and you can have acute inflammation that's adaptive and good for you, or either can be bad for you, because acute and chronic can be both good and bad, each of them.
0: Inflammation, as we've heard, can be really good for you, even though it might not feel great. However, there are times where inflammation can be bad or deleterious, so that's where we're headed next.
1: So we've talked about when inflammation is a good and healing process for our bodies. But what about when it's not so good or when it's bad and can cause injury?
2: It can be bad for us if the response is too strong. An example of this is septic shock. What is happening there is that maybe bacteria have released substances into the blood that stimulate the immune system. If our immune response is so great that it causes us to die, that in the end is not good for us. What it's trying to do is to get rid of those bacteria. It's trying to do the right thing. But if the response is too powerful or too exuberant, we can actually die from our own immune response. And every day people in the intensive care unit die, sometimes not because of the bacteria itself, but because of the way our immune system responds to it. And that's an example of how what we call acute inflammation can be very bad for us. Another example of when the immune system is bad for us is what I would describe when it's unbalanced. Let's go back to the splinter for a minute. We talked earlier about how those white blood cell soldiers that we call the neutrophils will come in first to get the splinter. But if we have a problem with our neutrophils, if, for example, our neutrophils aren't much chop and they're not very good at swallowing that splinter or trying to swallow that splinter and we have a defect in them, let's say we're born with that, another part of our immune system will try to do the job, but it will make a mess of it. And there are some rare conditions that we won't talk about in this podcast where people are born where their neutrophils don't work very well. And those people end up having very severe, long-standing chronic illness because another part of their immune system will try to do the job. Another example of when your immune system can do harm is when it's not strong enough, when it doesn't rise to the challenge appropriately. And again, what you can have in that situation is that other parts of the immune system will try to compensate and it won't be very good for us. It's not coordinated properly. Another example is when our immune system is our actual enemy. Most of the time in all of us, we are very good at working out what is an outsider and what is self. And medical students learn about this and many people in the public understand this very well. From time to time, partly because of the genes we have in our body that shape our immune system, some people have an immune system that is not very good at recognising what is self and what is other. And when that happens, our immune system can fight a war against us. And if it does that, of course, that's not a good idea because there actually isn't an invader. And the immune system can essentially attack many organs, different organs in our bodies. So there's some examples of how an immune system that isn't appropriately constrained, appropriately refined or appropriately powerful can't actually do the job that we need it to do.
1: You've given quite a few examples there. Are these sort of things things that happen very commonly in the community?
2: For most people, our immune system does the job that we need it to do. Most of us, if there's an insult that happens from the environment or an infection, a trauma, our immune system is incredible. There are many illnesses that our medical researchers study, that we are involved in medicine. We are looking after people who become unwell. There are some conditions that are very common. So acute appendicitis is quite common, for example.
0: Another example of a situation where the immune system's attempting to fight off an external infection is with the flu virus. In that case, we do have flu deaths each year, and this is often due to the immune response being significant, and many of the symptoms that we experience from the flu are actually due to that immune system doing its job. However, in some cases, Those symptoms become so severe and detrimental to the breathing and that inflammatory process is extraordinary. So it's another example of where you get over responsive immune system and it ends up hurting us or harming us.
2: The people who usually do die from the flu in fact are the very young and the very old. And so I absolutely agree with you that in some cases the reason people die is because of a very profound response to that viral infection. But equally, it could also be that in the immature immune system of a newborn or the sort of floundering or degenerating immune system of the elderly, that you can't mount a big enough response. In general, when you have an epidemic of any kind of virus, it is often the very young, the very old or the infirm or people who are otherwise unwell who succumb to that infection. And in that case, it's because their immune system isn't strong enough.
0: Using that example with the flu, why the flu vaccine may be helpful is it starts to prime that immune system and help that maybe lower response become higher and ready to go should the flu virus come in contact.
2: It's a really good point. I have a lot of patients who have problems with their immune system where their immune system's attacking them. And so I'm giving them medicine to tell their immune system to calm down. And what that means is those people are more vulnerable to infection. And I say to those people every year, it would be very good for you to be vaccinated against things like the flu or pneumonia. And the reason for that is I want your immune system to have met that infection in a small way before, and I want your immune system to be taught how to fight it so that when this infection comes around, your immune system is better prepared. So it is extremely important for people to be vaccinated against preventable disease because it protects all of us from epidemics.
0: So vaccines are sort of like the boot camp for the army.
2: Like the boot camp for the immune system. In the end, the immune system uh, is very, very good, but sometimes we can help it along by teaching it how to fight certain things. And that's what vaccines are. A lot of people feel worried about vaccines and they feel that the vaccine makes them sick because they feel a bit sick when they have a vaccine. But I usually say to my patients and other people that that's your immune system learning how to fight. And so you should feel a little bit unwell sometimes after a vaccine because that's your immune system learning, having a little sparring or boxing match with that virus or infection so that when it really comes, that it's ready.
1: Is there a way that we can make use of that good response from inflammation to help ourselves?
2: Well, Tiffany, I think vaccination is a fantastic example of how we can harness the good aspects of our immune system to protect us.
1: So we've talked about acute inflammation being good or bad. But what about chronic inflammation when it goes for a longer time? Is that also something which can be good or bad?
2: Some of the time, Tiffany, if the immune system is continuing to be activated for many weeks or months, it's chronic. It's there because the invader hasn't gone. An example of that might be if you had a chronic infection of the bone. It's a very deep tissue. It's hard for the blood to get to that area. We call that osteomyelitis. That's white blood cell soldiers in the bone your immune system will keep going for that because the bug is still there. And if we go in and we try to get the bug out with a needle or a biopsy of the bone, we find the bug is there. So in that case, so should the immune system still be there trying to fight that bug. That is an example of a chronic inflammation which needs to keep going. The bug hasn't gone. Other times, though, people tend to think of chronic inflammation as being situations where the immune system doesn't know how to switch off. And there are some very rare conditions where the immune system is trying to wall off a bug and it can't do a very good job of it. Sometimes when bugs live inside cells, it's very hard for the immune system to get at them. TB is an example of that, but there's other very small bugs that live inside cells and your immune system is chronically trying to wall that off. We call that a granuloma or a lump. And it's very chronic inflammation. But actually, it's not inappropriate. It's trying to get at something that it can't get at, if that makes sense. Also, when your immune system wants to fight a war against you, well, there never was an invader. I mean, the autoimmune disease, there never was one. Or if there was, it's been and gone. But your immune system is saying, hold on, I've got to get at something. I mean, I'm an immunologist, rheumatologist. I find that the most inappropriate kind of inflammation because what a waste of immune energy and time, and it's damaging your organs or it's damaging you. The immune system is confused. It doesn't know how to switch off because it can't find the thing it's going for. I think that that is the kind of chronic inflammation which is bad for you.
1: In cases like that, when inflammation is bad for you, what are the things that we can do to try and help in terms of like medical interventions? So
2: if we know what the problem is, the best thing to do is to treat the problem. An example of that might be if there's a bug there, a bacteria, then let's give the antibiotic. Let's get rid of the trigger. That is the best way. Another example of that might be something like gout. It can be acute or chronic. It's an agonisingly painful inflammatory problem. Any person who's listening to this who's suffered from gout will know exactly what I mean. In that case, though, we know exactly why the immune system is activated. We've got very high levels of uric acid in our blood, and it might spill over into our joints or tissues. And when it does, those white blood cell soldiers like neutrophils, they love to go for that uric acid, which is turned into crystals in the joint. And the neutrophils will go there and try to swallow those uric acid crystals and release all these inflammatory substances that cause extreme pain. In that case, I'd be quite silly to tell the immune system to calm down because the immune system is going for something that shouldn't be there. In a sense, the uric acid crystal is like a tiny microscopic splinter inside. And your immune system's going there because it should not be there. So why would I give that person a medicine to suppress their immune system when I know exactly the cause? In that case, what I should do is lower the uric acid in the body and stop those uric acid splinters from coming into the tissue. If, however, the immune system is making a terrible mistake and there is no trigger that I can identify, and I'm absolutely happy that there's no infection and I cannot find any agent that is inciting that, but the immune system is just super switched on and harming you. So if it's inflaming your brain, your kidneys, your lungs, like it might do in a problem called lupus, Uh, If your immune system is doing that, and that could happen in rheumatoid arthritis, where your immune system is inappropriately fighting a war against you, your tissues and your organs, in that case, I should try to calm your immune system down using medicines that actually disarm those white blood cell soldiers. And we call those medicines immunosuppressants.
1: So those are some of the medications that we can use. What are some of the other alternative and complementary therapies that we could use other than medications? I think it's a
2: really interesting area and question, and I believe that we need to keep a very open mind, as all scientists should, about possible ways of managing things that may not be to do with medications or drugs or standard Western therapies. And I think that there are possibilities in the natural world. I mean, one very important example is the way in which the brain itself can modulate inflammation in the body. We always talk about the molecules of the immune system are moving between the brain and the body. And it is possible to use techniques in the mind to regulate the immune system, for example. Quite recently, it was shown that modulating the autonomic immune system, in this case, what they call a vagal stimulator, people listening to this may not realise, but the vagus nerve is part of our nervous system and it can actually change our immune system completely. And what some authors have shown, these are uh, French and authors from the Netherlands, have actually shown that if you stimulate the vagus nerve using a vagal nerve stimulator, you can actually dampen immune and inflammatory responses in the body, in this case, in experimental arthritis. So the question then is, using things like, dare I say, mindfulness or meditation, you can actually change your vagal tone in your body. And so this notion that you could use your mind to regulate things in your body as a scientist i should never throw this idea out i should continue to think about how we can use approaches across you know immunosuppressant medicines and our diets and our way of life we should actually take a holistic approach but we should be very cautious about fads and we should be very cautious about things that are going to cost our patients and the public a lot of money but have not been examined carefully. At the end of the day, you always should keep an open mind, but be prepared to scientifically examine the possibility that these natural things can work. And there are many examples of certain natural therapies undergoing randomized control trials, which is the gold standard for us um, medical practitioners. And I do think that if there is something that in observational studies been shown to be effective, those things should absolutely be examined in terms of their positive impact on health. The difficulty in our society is people will not do large randomized control studies on something unless it can be monetized. And so therein lies the problem.
1: On the topic of new upcoming therapies, things like antioxidants or antioxidant-rich foods, what's the theory behind them and how they actually work to help in an inflammatory process?
2: One of the things is that foods that are rich in antioxidants are often rich in other things, and food is very complex. Sometimes a particular therapeutic action that is ascribed to a particular food is narrowed down to one component of that food, but in fact may to do with many aspects of that food. And so people talk about macronutrients and things like that. The short answer to your question, Tiffany, is I actually don't know.
0: When we're talking about food-based effects on inflammation, it's not just about the food. It's not just about the substance because it needs to be taken into the body and processed in some way. So often if we're taking it through the oral cavity or through the mouth, it needs to go through the digestive system and it breaks down. And so some things that would work on cells directly are not what they call bioavailable anymore once you eat it because the digestive juices break it down to a form that's no longer usable. So that's why there's so much debate and that's why this area is very difficult to research.
2: That's a really good point because people often talk for, say, joint pain. One of the classic ones that's out there is about chondroitin and glucosamine, which are two natural constituents of cartilage. So it seems logical that if you ingest a lot of that, somehow you're going to replenish your cartilage and plump up your cartilage, which is the cushions in your joints. But I think it's quite analogous to things like skincare, where, of course, there's collagen in your skin, But if you plaster your skin with $500 collagen cream, it doesn't mean that it's going to get into the cells of your skin. And as a person who is myself aging, I'll tell you it doesn't work. (laughs) And I, I can see the evidence that it doesn't work. But the fact is that the placebo effect is also very powerful and all of us can experience it and it might be something we should harness. If I take something and I believe in it, I will perhaps temporarily experience relief from pain. And that may last up to three months or longer, possibly six months. And that's a good thing. There's no harm in that. But if you're paying a lot of money for something over a long period of time and the placebo effect wanes, then that's harmful to your hip pocket, even if it's not harmful to your
0: health. And I think the placebo effect really illustrates the complexities between, again, the mindfulness in the brain and the process of inflammation. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank this interdisciplinary team for talking about the very complex issue of inflammation, both healthful and unhelpful versions of that. Thank you for joining me today. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag AnatQ.